congratulations on your selection as an ecological chrononaut. You have been chosen to go back in time to two different geologic eras nearly 200 million years apart from each other. Your mission? To visit the Permian-Triassic extinction and the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, both of them periods of intense global warming. The first led to almost complete extinction of all life on Earth. The second led to some extinctions in the ocean, while life on land not only survived, but flourished. We need to know how they differed so greatly in their ecological and evolutionary effects on Earth's biota. After you go back in time, you will meet a capable group of researchers who have already made the trip. They will present their findings and their theories to you as you explore the ancient planet together. You will learn the latest scientific theories about the causes of rapid global warming, and you will learn about the impacts it had on the atmosphere, the geology, and the ecology of Earth. What is the goal of our expedition? The answer is simple. We humans of the 21st century are living in a time of climate change, and a few answers about how it will affect our planet. To get them, you will go back to two of the most important climate anomalies in Earth's history. In each of your missions, you will examine the evidence modern scientists have gathered, and at the end, you will draw conclusions about the complex relationship between climate and extinction. Most importantly, you will consider how these findings apply to the warming Earth of 2021. Time machine ready for departure. Good luck, Agent. Your temporal insertion to the end of the Paleocene begins in 3, 2, 1. Temporal insertion complete. You step out of the time machine and into Earth as it was almost 56 million years ago. Immediately things seem strange. First, it's hot. You'd expected it to be warmer than where you came from, but this still takes you by surprise. You entered the time machine in Wyoming, and you were told you would exit it at the same location. It's not just hot. Humid, too. You look around you and you see you're in a dense rainforest, grown so thick you can barely see the sky. You certainly have never imagined Wyoming ever felt so tropical. A calm voice greets you. All right, Chrononaut, welcome to Terra Nova. I'll be your first guide. My name is Dr. Jane Francis of the University of Leeds. Dr. Francis stands before you in a wide-brimmed hat with a mosquito net. She's wearing shorts, and you know she's carrying a small oxygen tank as well as two large water bottles. She shoves one into your arms. Wild stuff, isn't it? Make sure to drink lots of water. That's a necessity during the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, or just the PETM for short. We are standing within one of the most well-known climate anomalies, a period of intense warming. The whole thing lasted just shy of 200,000 years. Right now we're near the very middle, about 90,000 years in. Wow, you say. How much hotter was it than baseline temperatures? Well, that depends what you consider baseline. Compared to the previous Paleocene and the beginning of the Eocene, temperatures jumped between 5 and 10 degrees Celsius. But compared to 2021, the PETM was on average nearly 15 degrees Celsius hotter. Amazing, you say, taking a large swig from your water bottle. You've already started to sweat. But how did we know this warming had even happened? And how could we have known how much the temperatures changed? It's an excellent question. Exact dating is a tough subject. We measure by the fraction of isotopes at a particular stratigraphic layer. The main evidence that the planet was warmer comes from the fraction of oxygen-18 isotopes. The hotter the temperature, the more oxygen-18 evaporates out of the oceans. But 
How on earth can you tell isotope fractions millions of years in the past? The secret is in fossils. For the early Cenozoic, at least, we like to specifically examine Foraminifera, which is a kind of microscopic organism with a carbonate shell. They leave those shells behind them when they die. We can measure the fraction of carbon and oxygen isotopes inside of them. You take a moment to think about the underappreciated Foraminifera. Billions of organisms that together have helped tell the story of planet Earth. Dr. Francis continues to speak. But that's not quite enough for us. We also want to know what made the planet warmer. And the main culprit here is almost always atmospheric carbon. To determine what caused the PETM, we look at the fossils and see how much of them contain the isotope carbon-13. You've been walking through a path in the dense rainforest. Now you come to a clearing. There, a group of researchers are taking a core sample, examining some machinery. So, what's the upshot of all this? You ask. Perfect timing with that question. For that, let's go ask Dr. James Zakos of the University of California, Santa Cruz. With that, Dr. Francis calls over one of the scientists from the group and introduces you. So, to summarize, says Dr. Zakos, the change in carbon-13 isotope fraction is called a carbon isotope excursion, or simply CIE. An excursion, you see, just means an anomalous change or spike in the amount of a given molecule within a certain stratigraphic layer. Me and many other researchers noticed that there is a massive CIE, in which the carbon-13 fraction rapidly decreased in a very short period of time. What was fascinating is that it was correlated with a decrease in oxygen-18 ratio, which, remember, means an increase in temperature. To confirm, we also saw an increase in the magnesium-calcium ratio in the foraminiferous shells, which doesn't use isotopes, but it's another important proxy that we use to estimate ocean temperature. You're starting to get it. But why did the carbon-13 fraction decrease? Shouldn't it have increased? The carbon-13 doesn't actually reflect how much carbon is in the atmosphere. Really, it reflects how much of it is from organic or inorganic sources. More carbon-13 fraction often means more ocean photosynthesis because phytoplankton prefer to use the basic carbon-12 atom. Less carbon-13 means that inorganic carbon is being released into the atmosphere from somewhere. This is because almost all inorganic carbon is carbon-12, and increasing it tells us that some underground source of carbon is being released. This could come from erosion or methane gas trapped underneath the Earth's surface. This is very important. You'll hear more about that later, both here and during the end of the Permian. Thanks, Dr. Zakos, says Dr. Francis. So, there's the gift of the isotopic evidence. To summarize, some non-living source released inorganic carbon that rapidly heated the Earth. As you walk through the rainforest, you notice how strange the bird calls are. There's something simply off about them, something more ancient. You see many mammals scampering through the treetops, and so many different kinds. You see at least five species in a couple minutes of walking. One mammal looks like a thickly built marmoset. You recognize it as Teal Hardina, one of the earliest primates. You are in awe. Monkeys, right here in ancient Wyoming. Who would have thought? Something small skitters by your feet. At first, you think it's a giant rat. Suddenly, a net shoots out of the jungle underbrush and envelopes the animal. You are shocked to see it's a miniature horse. Sure is a strange-looking animal, almost a cross between a dog and a horse. It certainly has the horse head, but it has three toes, and it's no bigger than a Jack Russell Terrier. It thrashes around and becomes quiet as it accepts its capture. Suddenly, two scientists in camouflage appear out of the jungle. One is holding a net gun. Got him, she says, smiling. Nice shot, says the other. Let's take some samples and release it. Only then do they notice you and Dr. Francis. 
Oh, you must be the new researcher, says one of the scientists. Dr. Francis introduces you. These are two mammopilientologists, Dr. Philip Gingrich of the University of Michigan and Dr. Kathleen Lyons of the University of Nebraska. How has the hunting been, Dr. Lyons, you say, as the scientists quickly take a DNA sample from the tiny horse. Outstanding, she responds. The PETM is one of the most important times for mammal evolution. Many of the mammalian orders we see today have their first conclusive fossil evidence right now, during this relatively short 200,000-year period. We are standing in the middle of one of the most important times for mammals, a real evolutionary radiation. You think back to those big dinosaur picture books you used to love so much. Didn't the age of mammals begin with the asteroid? That was 10 million years ago. Indeed it did. Mammals of the Paleocene were plentiful, and in fact they were generally larger than the mammals here at the end of the era, but they were not as diverse taxonomically or anatomically as they would eventually be here in the PETM. And most of the early Paleocene groups had been long extinct before the age of humans, unlike the ones we see now. Eohippus here will one day become our faithful steeds. You take a good look at the miniature horse. It will be many millions of years before it can hold a cowboy. So why did the PETM lead to so much mammal diversification? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Says Dr. Gingrich. There are many theories and they're not mutually exclusive from one another. A lot of factors may have contributed to this diversification. Oh, hold him steady, Dr. Lyons. Dr. Gingrich gently takes a DNA sample from the struggling horse, and scientists begin to take measurements of it. The big changes, unsurprisingly, result from the climate. First, this rapid change in environment led to rapid evolution. For example, many mammals got smaller. After all, it's beneficial to be smaller in warmer climates and larger in colder ones. Some researchers, myself included, believe evolution is driven less by coevolution with other animals and more by short episodes of environmental change, sometimes called the stasis hypothesis. You rarely get more of an intense environmental change than the PETM. Oh, I can see that. New environments mean animals evolve new traits, and some of those traits may persist even after the environment changes again. Precisely. Second, the tropical environment means animals who can only live in the tropics can travel farther distances. When the tropics reached all the way up to Wyoming in higher latitudes, tropical adapted animals could travel in between continents. This dispersal helped create the rapid radiation we observe. But wouldn't they have to compete with the animals that already lived in those places? Dr. Lyons chimes in. Not necessarily. By looking at functional traits during the migrations of the PETM, especially regarding body size, Dr. Daniel Fraser and I found that though species richness increased, the composition of individual communities remained quite similar. We believe this means that, before the PTM, not all niches had been filled, and that the new species found places in these ecosystems without too much competition. Well, how nice, you think to yourself. Maybe not all species invasions have to have a winner and a loser. Here, uh, help us untangle this little guy, will ya? Says Dr. Gingrich. You help get the little horse out of the net, and it rushes back into the undergrowth. You spend the rest of the day here in the jungle, helping the scientists collect data. At night, you help set up camp. You can barely sleep due to the excitement of being here. Well, the heat and the constant sounds of the jungle don't help either. Next morning, after packing up camp and saying goodbye to the scientists, Dr. Francis escorts you to a large and silver airship. It looks like something between a plane and a helicopter. When you're aboard, another group of scientists greets you. They're all wearing flight suits. They help you put on the suit, which cover your entire body, and they have a respirator. You begin to feel a little worried. 
Uh, how high up are we going? You say to Dr. Francis as the engines start up. My friend, we're going all the way to space. Before you have the chance to respond, the ship blasts off. You close your eyes due to the G-forces and you have to admit a little bit of fear. After only a few minutes, however, you feel the acceleration stop. You can open your eyes now, says a voice. Welcome to space. You look out the window and your heart nearly stops. Down below you is the Earth in all its glory, but it's not quite like the satellite photos you've seen back in 2021. The continents are almost, but not entirely, where you think they should be. It's like someone tried to draw the planet from memory while very drunk. North America is not connected to South America, but Asia and North America are connected between both Alaska and Greenland. Not to mention, Australia is still connected to Antarctica. All those land bridges must have helped with the mammal dispersion Dr. Gingrich was talking about. But then you realize what's not there. There's no ice at the poles. Antarctica is green. And you notice something else. There's some sort of strange cloud in the North Atlantic, near the rather deformed-looking island of Great Britain. What's that? You ask the scientists. That may well be the whole reason the PETM began. Those are the ash clouds of the North Atlantic Igneous Province, or the NAIP for short. In fact, let's dive in there now. And just like that, your ship hurdles towards Earth at breakneck speed. At least you're ready for it this time. You land at another research station south of the volcanoes. It's on the beach, on what will one day be the west coast of Europe. Waves lap, gently lap against the shore. Though you're near modern France, Thick rainforest begins at the edge of the sand. They're far away, but you can still see the clouds of ash that the volcanoes built into the sky. So, the volcanoes caused all this warmth? Well, that's what we think. By the way, I'm Dr. Marcus Guttar, University of Southampton, at your service. Pleased to meet you, Doctor. So, the ash acts like a greenhouse gas? Ash doesn't help, but the real culprit is the underground carbon that the volcanoes release. All that carbon acts as a greenhouse gas. And that warms the planet. You think again about the lack of ice sheets. Before you came here, it was hard to imagine an Earth without them. Another scientist, who introduces themselves as Dr. Dickens of the University of Michigan, speaks up. The carbon released by the volcanoes were important, but more importantly, this led to a release of methane hydrates underneath the seafloor. Uh, methane hydrates? You say? What are those? Underneath the seafloor, large amounts of methane gas are trapped, crystallized, into ice crystals. When the planet warms, or sometimes when the lava melts this ice directly, this methane gas gets released. Methane is one of the most potent possible greenhouse gases, much more than even carbon dioxide. This methane release may create a positive feedback loop, warming the planet even faster than it had been before. Dr. Gutar speaks up again. Indeed, hydrates contributed to the PETM, but me and my colleagues believe most of the carbon came directly from the volcanoes. Dr. Dickens says, that is one theory, but the evidence, you see... And with that, the two scientists launch into a friendly but spirited debate. You can tell the question about whether volcanoes or methane hydrate contributed the most to the warm temperature is not a settled question. And you know better than to take a side. You slip away from the debating scientists and go up to a researcher who is knee-deep in the tropically warm ocean. They're pulling a large net through the water. How's the fishing? You joke as the waves reach your shoes. My word, you think. This ocean is so warm. The researcher introduces herself as Dahlia Arxila of the George Washington University. Well, it depends what you're fishing for, 
she says. I'm looking for pufferfish. Not much luck. Uh, pufferfish? Why are you studying them? Well, I'm looking to see if there are any left. The PETM led to a massive extinction in tetradontiform fishes. Those are raven fishes like pufferfish and triggerfish. Not only that, there was a massive extinction of benthic-dwelling foraminifera. Oh, not the forams, you say. Ever since learning how important they were for isotopic analysis, you've grown to like the little guys. This was almost certainly due to reduced oxygen levels in the ocean and acidification. The good news is that after the extinction, the fishes, and to an extent the forams, experienced a burst of diversification. So, uh, don't worry, they recovered. But my colleague, Dr. R Robert Spire, suggests that if something like that happened back in 2021, ocean anoxia and acidification may spell disasters for modern coral reefs. Well, that was sort of a reality check, you think to yourself. You guess that though terrestrial life flourished, the PETM wasn't so great for all organisms. But for now, you put that out of your mind. Instead, you spend the rest of the day playing in the warm water and enjoying the beach. You're kind of sorry to have to go to bed for the night, because you know you'll have to leave tomorrow. And, sooner than you'd like, Dr. Francis comes to pick you up, and you fly back to Wyoming in the spaceship. It's a pretty short ride, considering how fast the ship goes, but you're so excited after all your adventures, you still feel the need to make conversation. You know, Dr. Francis, the PETM doesn't seem so bad. Yes, there was some loss of marine diversity, but only in specific groups. The rest of the planet seems to be doing just fine in the warmth. I almost hate to say it, but could global warming not be all that terrible in the long run? Dr. Francis gives you a smile that almost seems sad. We'll see if you still think so once you visit the end of the Permian. And with those rather ominous words, you've landed back at the Wyoming rainforest. You've enjoyed your time there so much, you're sorry to leave. You say goodbye to all the scientists you've met, including Dr. Francis. We'll see each other back in the 21st century. Of course, I look forward to meeting again in only 56 million years. You take one last look into the lush green forest, and you open the hatch of the time machine once more. Insertion to the end of the Permian in three, two, one. Temporal insertion complete. Once more, you step out into another world. This one more far distant than the past. You're at the end of the Permian era, almost 252 million years ago. The first thing that strikes you is the lack of noise. Back in the PETM, there were calls of all sorts. Bird calls, mammals, insect noises. Here, there's only the sound of wind. You take a look around you, and you see you're in the middle of a field of strange-looking plants, spaced about a meter apart from each other. They reach about waist-high, and they don't have branches, just leaves coming out of a central green stalk. There's no grass below them, there's no other kinds of plants at all, in fact. The ground below these plants is only bare rock and dirt. The sky does not look as blue as it did before, much more gray. You feel like you're on another planet. It feels hot, but 
not so different from the PETM. It's just the air feels dirty and dusty. You quickly put on your oxygen mask. Even the canned air feels nicer to breathe than this. In front of you is a group of plain white shelters. Out of one of them emerges a man wearing an oxygen mask, and he greets you. Welcome to the Permian, Crononaut, he says. You stand in the golden age of extinction. My name is Dr. Michael Benton of the University of Bristol. Pardon the dust. Eh, better than the bugs, you joke, but you know that's not true. You already missed the PETM. I'm used to the heat anyway. Dr. Benton takes you on a walk and shows you around. You ask him, so you knew the extinction was happening at this time by the fossil record. But how did you know it was also a time of climate change? Through the isotopes record, of course. Didn't Dr. Francis explain it while you were in the PETM? Oh, oh, you say, of course, the isotope record. You know this because there was a carbon isotope excursion, also known as a CIE. You know that from looking at fossils in this layer of soil. Indeed, almost exactly the same way as our colleagues back at the PETM. We look at different fossils than foraminifera, and the isotopes record is harder to read the farther you go back in time. But we found that the Enpermian and the PETM had remarkably similar isotope excursions. And now you come to a small stand of conifer trees. Finally, you think. Something that looks like it does at home. While resting under one of the trees, you see a strange alien creature. Looks a little like a reptilian sort of naked mole rat. It's about the size of a cat. It's a Lystrosaurus and it looks at you quizzically before skittering away. You say, since we've been walking, I've only seen four, maybe five different species of plants. I'm lucky if I see 10 different kinds of plants in a week. Pretty surprising for land that's now in Brazil, huh? In all, during the whole Permian extinction, the planet lost the vast majority of its biodiversity. 70% of land vertebrates, 81% of marine species. Plants were decimated, but there's speculation on how badly. Even insects, which normally do pretty well during mass extinctions, were greatly affected. This right here, the worst extinction event in the history of our planet. That takes a second to really sink in with you. You say, it doesn't feel that much hotter than the PETM. Compared to 2021 levels, it really isn't. Both feel about equally hot to us. But compared to the early Permian, temperatures have climbed anywhere between 10 16 degrees. Back in the PETM, temperatures only jumped between 5 10 from the early Paleocene. But you said the Permian and the PETM had similar isotope excursions. Ah, you'll have a lot to talk about with Dr. Kump. You spend the rest of the day helping the researchers gather data. You take some soil samples, gather plants, help capture some Lystrosaurus. Those seem to be the only animals you see around here. Some bigger, some smaller, but not really so different on the whole. You think about the jungles back in the PETM, how many different species you could see without even turning your head. Here there is little but fields of strange, identical plants under a sooty sky. You return to the camp early. You spend the night talking to the scientists. You sleep well that night. There are few animal calls to distract you. The next morning, you meet Dr. Lee Kump. He greets you friendly and leads you to his spaceship. You're still not really used to riding these things, but you're glad to be out from underneath that gray sky. In moments, 
you're again at the edge of space. When you look back down at Earth, you almost recoil in horror. It truly looks like another planet. The continents are all joined together in Pangaea. There are no ice caps. There's still some green, but there's also a lot of brown, much more so than the PETM. You realize you haven't seen a true forest since you arrived. You notice at the northeast side of Pangaea some uh, volcanic-looking clouds, not unlike the ones you saw during the PETM. Are those the culprit behind the extinction, you say? Yes, we believe so. Those volcanoes are the Siberian traps, which release large amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Some people believe an asteroid impact contributed to this dust, but that is a question for another adventure. You think you might be starting to get it. Did those also mean more release of methane hydrates from under the ocean? Oh yes, he says, we believe so. So that explains how it had a similar carbon isotope excursion to the PETM. Why did it get hotter than the PETM did? And why did it stay that hot for millions of years, while the PETM only was hot for a couple thousand years? Well, says Dr. Kump, I believe the Siberian trap simply erupted more than the North Atlantic Igneous province. But I also hypothesized the Siberian traps had more carbon-13 in them than did the NAIP. So it looked like there was less of a spike in the isotope record, even though the temperature was changing more than the PETM. But most importantly, we think the rate of silicate weathering decreased, so less carbon was getting pulled out of the air. Silicate weathering, you say, what's that? If it can reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, it sounds important. Well, says Dr. Kump, some carbon dioxide falls inside raindrops. Those CO2 molecules combine with molecules in rocks and are washed into the ocean, onto continental shelves. Then, marine organisms use those molecules to make their shells. When those marine organisms die, the carbon in their shells becomes part of the carbonate rock on the continental shelf. The upshot of all this is that carbon dioxide gets pulled out of the atmosphere and put into rocks on the seafloor. So, you say, this weathering, that's what led to the end of the PETM? It pulled carbon out of the atmosphere and into Earth's crust? Exactly, says Dr. Kump. It takes a very long time, but it cools down the Earth. So, what happened here in the Permian? Why didn't it work this time? Well, part of the answer is right in front of our eyes. With that, Dr. Kump gestures towards the window of the spaceship. Pangea is spread out before you. The shape of the continents? Yes. When all these continents are together like this, there is less continental shelf for the carbon to get deposited on. Silicate weathering is like our environmental regulator, but Earth and the Permian Triassic extinction overwhelm this safety net. So that's why it stayed warm for so much longer, why the oceans became more acidic, and for those two reasons made so many species go extinct. Yes, Chrononaut, you're understanding now. There are many factors at play. The feedback loop with volcanoes and with methane hydrates, the shapes of the continents, the chemical composition of the rocks, there is much to study with all these moving parts. I think, I think I'm starting to get it. I'm glad your trip through deep time has given you a new perspective on climate and extinctions. Unfortunately, the hour has now come for you to go back to 2021. You land back at the research station and you enter the time machine one last time. You said goodbye to the researchers, 
but you're not sorry to leave the great dying. Returning to original time in three, two, one. Temporal insertion complete. Welcome home, Chrononaut. You've traveled many millions of years over these past two days, but now you're finally back where you belong. Your couch. But you've learned much throughout your journey. You think about how the areas you visited may be similar to the global warming of the 21st century. The PETM led to a flourishing green world, but it had slightly different effects on the ocean. In our fight against the effects of climate change, we would do well not to ignore the seas. On the whole, though, the PETM event, you think, is one of the best-case scenarios. An example of the silicate weathering process saving the day. But the Permian represents what happens when that process fails. Part of you is relieved that the Earth has much more continental shelf than it did during Pangaea. But you are struck by a worrying similarity. The Permian world started warming while an ice house, which means it had a low initial temperature and more room to go up than did the PETM. You consider the fact that the Permian started out with ice caps, while the Paleocene did not. In our way, our world may warm in a similar pattern as the Permian, if carbon emissions do not cease to accelerate. You take a second and you think about all the feedback loops that govern Earth's climate. It systems to heat it, yes, like volcanoes and methane hydrate release, but it also has systems to cool itself down. The issue is that, due to human activity, the world is heating fast, maybe faster than it ever has before. While cooling can take millions of years. But seeing the Permian has also made you appreciate life's resiliency. Earth has made it through tough times. You're sure it will recover from climate change, even if it takes many, many years. But one thing's for sure. The longer the heat lasts and the more intense it gets, there comes a point in which species can no longer flourish like the mammals of the PETM could. Taxa worldwide begin to die off, and a mass extinction begins. At that point, the question is how long the carbon and the heat will continue to increase. The longer the planet spends past that mass extinction threshold, the more species it will lose. Before you fall asleep that night, one question resonates in your mind. Will humans be one of those species?